Do you have trouble seeing up close or far away? How about at night? I know I do. Go check out Design for Vision and Sunglass Central. They are the premier eye care center for all eyeglasses, sunglasses, and contact lenses in southeastern PA. Whether it is the quality eyeglasses, sunglasses, or contacts that you're looking for, their styles represent the latest in fashionable but affordable eyewear. Not only do they offer a wide selection of non-prescription brands, but they offer prescription lenses fabrication. Whether it's in-store or online, they carry all major brands such as Oakley, Dolce & Gabbana, Coach, Michael Kors, Ray-Ban, Maui Jim, Wiley X, and many more. With over 50 years of experience, Design for Vision and Sunglass Central are the best in fabrication, selection, and fitting of designer and specialty glasses. Design for Vision has convenient locations in Morrisville, Levittown, New Hope, Newtown, and Jameson. Sunglass Central can be found at the New Hope, Newtown, and Jameson locations. That's designforvision.com and sunglasscentral.net. This is Chet with Flow Racing. You're listening to the Four Wide Salute Podcast. Happy Memorial Day to all of you guys out there. And of course, to any active or former military, thank you for all that you have done. And welcome back to another episode of the Four Wide Slew Podcast, presented by Linedecker Racing Engines. Head on over to Facebook, pop J Linedecker Racing Engines into your search bar, and go see what Jason has to offer. Breaking news items this week, not a whole lot, thankfully. But there is one item. Pennsylvania Sprint Speed Week schedule was released this past week. And it kicks off Friday, June 23rd at Williams Grove, 8,000 to win. Heads on over Saturday, the 24th to Lincoln, $10,092 to win. Then Sunday, the 25th of June, Baps Motor Speedway, 8,000 to win. Monday, the 26th, they go back to Lincoln for another 8,000 to win show. Then Tuesday, the 27th, Grandview Speedway, 10,000 to win. Wednesday, the 28th, they'll head down to Hagerstown for 8,000 to win. Thursday will be an off day. And then Friday, June 30th, Williams Grove once again, 20,000 to win. Saturday, July 1st, Port Royal Speedway, 10,000 to win. Sunday, July 2nd, they then will go to Sealands Grove for 10,000 to win. And Monday, July 3rd, Port Royal Speedway, 15,000 to win finale. 10 races in 11 days. That is a lot. On to our results. Think back to last Sunday. All-Star Circuit of Champions, Weed Sports Speedway up in New York, along with Big Block Modifieds. Corey Eliasson picking up the win over Zeb Wise, Tyler Courtney, Scotty Thiel, and Matt Farnham were the top five. And Modified Competition, Matt Shepard was your winner. 
Lucas Oil ASCS, the rain date for the Friday show at Longdale Speedway in Oklahoma. The rain at last Sunday, Seth Bergman, your winner over Matt Covington, Landon Crawley, Kyler Johnson, and Danny Wood, your top five. USAC Midgets also in competition last Sunday, Sweet Springs Motorsports Complex in Missouri, 6,000 to win. Jacob Denny picking up the victory over Dason Persley, Timez, Taylor Reimer, and Bryant Wiedemann were your top five. And Baps Motor Speedway, 410s and 602 Crate Sportsman on the docket last Sunday. Brent Marks picking up the 410 victory. And Tom Princiata was your 602 Crate Sportsman winner. On to Tuesday, USAC Sprints, Terre Haute Action Track in Indiana. Brady Bacon, your winner over Kyle Cummins, Jake Swanson, Mitchell Moles, and CJ Leary. Extreme Outlaw Midgets, night number one out of two for the Extreme Outlaw Midget Showdown at Millbridge Speedway down in North Carolina, 4,000 to win. Cannon McIntosh getting it done over Gavin Miller, Chase McDermott, Briggs Danner, and Mariah Ede were the top five. World of Outlaw Late Models, New York State Line Showdown at State Line Speedway in New York, of course, 10,000 to win. First time winner on the World of Outlaw Elite Models Tour, Nick Hoffman, picking up the victory over Max Blair, Bobby Pierce, Gordy Gundaker, and Chubzilla, Chubb Frank, rounded out the top five. On to Wednesday, USAC sprints in action once again, the week of Indy, Circle City Raceway in Indiana. Jake Swanson getting it done over Kyle Cummins. Brady Bacon, Justin Grant, and Robert Ballou were the top five. Extreme Outlaw Midgets, night number two of the Extreme Outlaw Midget Showdown, Millbridge Speedway. Once again, 4,000 to win. Cannon McIntosh sweeping the week, this time over Taylor Reimer, Chase McDermott, Gavin Bochelle, and Gavin Miller was the top five. In local action, Action Track USA, Speedster victory to Timmy Buckwaller. And Micro Action 600's Connor Gross going back to back. On a Thursday, All-Star Circuit of Champions, along with the Modifies down at Bridgeport Motorsports Park in New Jersey, 10,000 to win. Tyler Courtney picking up the victory over Kyle Reinhardt, Anthony Macri, Hunter Schoenberg, and Corey Eliasson. And on the modified side of things, Kale Ross picked up the victory. USAC Sprints, again, week of Indy, Circle City Raceway in Indiana this time for 10000 to win. Kyle Cummins, your winner over Jake Swanson, Brady Bacon, Emerson Axum, and Matt Westfall. Fun fact, USAC Sprints ran three consecutive nights the top three were the same three guys in three different orders. Shows you who's got the heavy hand right now. World of Outlaw Late Models kicking off the battle at the border weekend. Sharon Speedway in Ohio, 6,000 to win on Thursday night. Chris Madden was your winner over Bobby Pierce, Mike Marler, Brandon Shepard, and Nick Hoffman. 
Lucas Oil Late Models kicking off the Show Me 100 weekend at Lucas Oil Speedway with the 10th Annual Cowboy Classic down in Missouri, 6,000 to win. Jonathan Davenport, your winner over Ricky Thornton Jr., Tyler Bruning, Tim McCready, and Spencer Hughes. On to Friday, World of Outlaw Sprints, Atomic Speedway in Ohio, 10,000 to win. Brad Sweet picking up the victory over Kyle Larson, Carson Macedo, David Gravel, and Skyler G was the hard charger in fifth. All-Star Circuit of Champions, Doug Esch Tribute, Williams Grove Speedway, Lance DeWeese, your winner over Danny Dietrich, Anthony Macri, Devin Borden, and Kyle Moody. Fun fact, Don Kreitz Jr. became the all-time winningest car owner at Williams Grove with 93 victories with that win on Friday, passing the legend Al Hamilton, who was the prior record holder. Congratulations. Lucas Oil ASCS Lakeside Speedway in Kansas. Austin McCarl picking up the victory over Jack Dover, Seth Bergman, Blake Hahn, and Colton Hardy. USAC Silver Crown Hoosier 100 Lucas Oil Indianapolis Raceway Park in Indiana. And picking up over $26,000 at the end of the day, Bobby Santos III over Logan Seedy, Tyler Rorig, Derek Bishop, and Taylor Ferns was your top five. World of Outlaw Late Models Battle at the Border, night number two at Sharon Speedway out in Ohio, 6,000 to win once again. Ryan Gustin, your winner over Kyle Bronson, Brandon Shepard, Mike Marler, and Chris Madden. Lucas Oil Late Models, the tribute to Don and Billy Gibson. Once again, Lucas Oil Speedway in Missouri, 6,000 to win. Jonathan Davenport, your winner once again over Tim McCready, Ricky Thornton Jr., Peyton Looney, and Brandon Overton. On to local action, Big Diamond Speedway, topless night. Modified victory going to Brett Cressley. 602 Crate Sportsman win to Mike Loney. The rookie 602 Crate Sportsman victory to Bryce Bayshore. And Roadrunner victory to Alex Schofstall. Albany, Saratoga, Jesse Mueller was your modified winner. And in the 602 Crate Sportsman, Pat Jones and Dylan Manson took home victories. Outlaw Speedway, they had four new winners on Friday night out of all of their divisions. Four. Four drivers who had never won a big car feature, period. That's impressive. Will Shields getting his first modified victory. Brandon Grover picking up his first American Racer Sportsman victory. And Blake Parson picking up his first Hoosier Sportsman victory. Utica Rome Modifieds ran Twin 20s. And Jamaica Soul and Alex Payne were the winners. And Matt Janzik back in victory lane with the 602 Crate Sportsman. Can Am Speedway was off. Brewerton. Modified victory going to Jimmy Phelps. 
Dirt Car Sportsman win to Ryan Dolbear. Lucas Oil ESS was also in the building. Danny Varon, your winner over Jonathan Preston and Larry White. Penn Can, Modified Victory to Brian Malcolm. 602 Crate Sportsman win to Brad Weaver. Ransomville, Matt Williamson, once again a winner with the Modifieds. And Brett Senek was your 602 Crate Sportsman winner. Accord, unfortunately, ended up canceling once again due to track conditions. I understand that they are removing the new surface. I wish them the best of luck in getting that place back into shape. It is not an easy game to play. On to Saturday night. World of Outlaw Sprints, Atomic Speedway, night number two. 10,000 to win. Carson Macedo with the sweep. Quick time, heat winner, dash winner, and feature winner. David Gravel was second, Donnie Schatz rounding out the podium, and Sheldon Hodenshield and Geo Selzy were the top five. All-Star Circuit of Champions, Bob Weikert Memorial, night number one, Port Royal Speedway, 10,000 to win. Anthony Macri with, I believe it was a nine-second victory over Mike Wagner, Brent Marks, Lance DeWeese, and Logan Wagner were your top five. Lucas Oil ASCS Lake Ozark Speedway in Missouri. First time winner, Joe B. Miller, picking up the win over Jason Martin, Seth Bergman, Landon Britt, and Howard Moore were your top five. World of Outlaw Lake Models Battle at the Border Finale at Sharon Speedway in Ohio, 25,000 to win. Chris Madden, your winner over Tanner English, Bobby Pierce. Brian Shirley, and Mike Marler. Lucas Oil Late Models 21st Annual Show Me 100. Lucas Oil Speedway in Missouri, 50000 to win. Ricky Thornton Jr. crossed the line first. However, as we will get into in today's episode, he was bitten by the droop rule. Now, the droop rule is fascinating depending on what series or what track you are talking about. So, in this case, the droop rule and your penalty depends on how much of it you're off by. So, if you're off by minimal amount, you're deducted this many spots. If you're off by then this much, then you're deducted more spots. And Ricky Thornton Jr. was penalized for his violation of the droop rule. However, I don't know that I'm in agreement with how this penalty is implied. So... If I was the guy that finished sixth, I might be a little upset that he wasn't disqualified. I mean, if you're illegal, you're illegal, right? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. But because of his infraction, his violation, he was bumped back to fifth. And Devin Moran took home $50,000 for winning the Show Me 100. 
Tim McCready ended up in second, Spencer Hughes third, Chris Ferguson in fourth, and RTJ, as I previously stated, was then granted fifth. This droop rule thing is interesting, and you'll find out how some people feel about that. But I will tell you, after the Show Me 100, your top 10 looks like this. Ricky Thornton Jr., Hudson O'Neill, Brandon Overton, Tim McCready, Devin Moran, Jonathan Davenport, Dalton Wilson, Max Blair, Tyler Erb, and Earl Pearson Jr. Did anyone call Jonathan Davenport being sixth in points? I didn't. Yeah, let's sleep on that one. Very interesting. But we'll find out, like I stated before, if Brandon Overton sticks around and runs the whole tour. Maybe even Davenport. Who knows if he decides to go chase other things. Guess we'll find out. On to our local results. New Egypt Speedway, salute to the veterans, 40. Danny Buck picking up the victory. And Brendan Hires was your wingless sprint winner. Grandview Speedway, which is where I went on Saturday. Doug Manmiller is on rails this year. Look out on the hill. They got something figured out, and this guy's fast. Getting his second win of the year, which he is now the first repeat winner at Grandview Speedway this season. And in sportsman competition, Kyle Smith was your winner. Bridgeport Motorsports Park modifieds were off. And Brian Papias was your 602 Crate Sportsman winner. On to Fonda Speedway, modified victory going to Stuart Friesen. And Peyton Talbot was your 602 Crate Sportsman winner. Woodhall, Dayton Brewer picking up the win in the modifieds. And Kenny Peoples Jr. in the 602 Crate Sportsman. Land of Legends, Eric Rudolph, your modified winner. And Carl Comfort, your 602 Crate Sportsman winner. Thunder Mountain, Matt Mead picking up the modified victory. And Dane Hedlund, your Dirk Hart Sportsman winner. Lebanon Valley, Mark Johnson getting the big block win. Lauren Brow picking up the small block victory. And Tim Hartman Jr., the 602 Crate Sportsman. After Motorsports Park, Danny Creeden picking up the modified victory. And Travis Smith in the 602 Crate Sportsman. Lincoln Speedway, Freddie Raymer, your 410 winner. And Super Late Model also in action, Kyle Hardy took home the win. On to yesterday. Short Track Super Series in North. Fast Cars in Freedom, Brookfield Speedway in New York. 602 Crate Sportsmen were the only division in action for 1500 to win. Very interesting track. If you did not watch that on flow, go check out the replay or the highlights. Blaine Klinger holding off Joe Toth in the late stages to pick up the win. Derek McGrew Jr. in third, Travis Green in fourth, and Dylan Madsen in fifth. Super Dirt Car Series Heroes remembered Weed Sports Speedway. $7,500 to win. Matt Williamson, your winner. 
by 16 seconds over Jimmy Phelps, Matt Shepard, Peter Britton, and Chris Heil. This thing went green all the way. And up until tonight, as Lebanon Valley has not completed yet, I believe Williamson has won six of the last eight, and I believe the last four Super Dirt Car races. This guy's on fire. Add in what he has been able to do at Ransomville. They don't call him Money Matt for nothing. All-Star Circuit of Champions, Bob Weikert Memorial, night number two, Port Royal Speedway, 29,000 to win. Thank you to Steve O'Neill for the hospitality for my wife and I. Lance DeWeese picking up the victory over Anthony Macri, Mike Wagner, Danny Dietrich, and Devin Borden rounded out your top five. Lucas Oil ASCS, Lake Ozark Speedway in Missouri. Jason Martin, your winner over Blake Hahn, Seth Bergman, Miles Paulus, and Jordan Mallett. And a local action, Penn Can had 602 Create Sportsman yesterday with Mike Nagel Jr. picking up the win. On to today's events, and then we'll get into the rest of the week. Super Dark Car Series tonight, already in action, the King of Spring, Lebanon Valley Speedway in New York. That is paying 13500 to win. That is on Dirt Vision. World of Outlaws Sprints are also in action tonight. Memorial Day Spectacular, Lawrenceburg Speedway in Indiana. Same thing goes. Dirt Vision. Friday, World of Outlaws Sprints. Girdeau presents the first leg of the Northern Tour River City Speedway in North Dakota. And Saturday, the Big O Showdown. Ogilvy Raceway in Minnesota. Again, those are all on Dirt Vision. All-Star Circuit of Champions, Friday, Dodge County Fairgrounds in Wisconsin. And then Saturday, the Race Routine Foundation Race, Plymouth Dirt Track, Sheboygan County Fairgrounds in Wisconsin. 26,000 to win. That will be on flow. High Limit Sprint Car Series, Wednesday night, Tri-City Speedway in Illinois, $23,000, $23 to win. That will also be on flow. Lucas Oil ASCS, Friday and Saturday, Mickey Walker Classic, Creek County Speedway in Oklahoma. Check out their social media to figure out where that is streaming at the moment. USAC Sprints, Friday and Saturday, Corn Belt Clash, Knoxville Raceway in Iowa, 6,000 to win Friday, 8,000 to win Saturday. Again, those will be on Flow Racing. Extreme Outlaw Midgets. Thursday, Tri-City Outlaw Showdown. Tri-City Speedway in Illinois, 4,000 to win. Friday and Saturday, Extreme Outlaw Midget Showdown. Wayne County Speedway in Illinois, 4,000 to win each of those. Again, go check out Dirt Vision. World of Outlaw Late Models Friday, Late Model Tri-City Showdown, Tri-City Speedway in Illinois, 12000 to win. That place is hopping this week. Saturday, Paducah Showdown, Paducah International Raceway in Kentucky, 15000 to win. Those will be on Dirt Vision. Lucas Oil Late Models Friday and Saturday, Historic 100 West Virginia Motor Speedway in West Virginia. 
Those will be on Flow Racing, and if I'm not mistaken, Saturday Night's feature pays a hefty 50 large to win. Went down to this event last year. Was kind of shocked at the card count, but that place is bad fast. And go sit up on that hill. Bring your lawn chair like everyone else does and soak it in, man. And last but not least, Castrol Full Race Night in America, Wednesday night, Florence Speedway, again, in Kentucky, $23,023 to win. I'll never guess, it's on Flow Racing. Those are your upcoming events. Those are your results. As always, thank you to all of our followers and subscribers. Like and share the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Smash the five-star rating button on all the podcast platforms. And a big thank you to Kane Bruce and Bill Brown and Company for the support. Do I say it? Do I go down that path? I told you guys what happened on last week's episode with my relationship with that place in the other state. That was respectable. I didn't say nothing bad. I did it the right way. Last Sunday, they had their makeup date. Which, by the way, Ryan, go down one if you didn't know that. But I noticed that the lineups were incorrect. And I'm a little peckerhead when it comes to lineups because, well, that's my job and that's what I'm really good at. And my two rules are don't fuck with people's money and don't fuck with their safety. Well, my lineups are incorrect. You're fucking with their money. And I don't like it. So I may have put a post on social media. I didn't tag them in it. I didn't call anyone out. I just made a statement. Now, how many of you out there, and I've already yelled at you for doing it, bashing tracks and bashing drivers and motherfucking this and motherfucking that, and calling for people's heads all the time and all kinds of stuff. And how many times does that particular driver that you're directing it at or that particular track you're directing it at, how often do they then try to embarrass you or try to make you look like an idiot or to taint your name. I'm going to go out on a whim here and say, never. Because big pond, little fish. I've read those comments. I see them all the time. We don't call up the racing paper and tell everyone that you're incompetent and complain about you. Well, wouldn't you fucking know it? 
Isn't that what happened? I had my post up for maybe 15 minutes. And then I sat back and I said, don't do that. That's not you. Don't play that game. So I deleted it. But that was enough time for the big pond to see it and got butt hurt. And I mean butt hurt. Called the racing paper and proceeded to drag my name through not mud, knee-deep shit that is over there at that place. Why? And a good friend of mine told me yesterday, and this makes perfect fucking sense. Yes, a race director is very important on race night. A race director, including myself, is not important enough unless you're Kirk Spridgen, unless you're Steve Francis or Kevin Nouse and you're one of these big series directors and you have a lot of attention on you. A normal Friday and Saturday night race director is not necessarily important enough to make a headline in a fucking newspaper. Well, I did, and it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant because the information that was provided was false. And I know some of you are asking, how do I know it's false? Because I still have the saved conversation between me and the complainer that will put all of that information to rest. So, you want to fight? You want to play this game? I ain't got nothing to lose. I have the full support of my boss at the other place. So, I made another post. And in that post, I once again did not bash, slander, attack. All I simply did was I stated the corrections to the information that was published in that paper. And I called them out by number, not by name. That was it. There were no bad words, no nothing. I just don't see how choosing to publish that made any fucking sense for the business. Because now you openly admitted to wanting to fix or rig things. Everyone's seen it. And then you openly admit to firing someone because they told you no. That's wrong. Don't do that. So while you may have attempted to make me look foolish, don't think it went the way you wanted it to. 
And I'm completely fine with that. And you have your racing paper and you can do that. I have my podcast. But again, I'm not about that life. However, I will clarify things and reiterate what is correct and what is false. My reputation will come into play one day in how I do my job working at a racetrack. I can't see anyone wanting to go there knowing there's fixing going on. I wouldn't want to, but that's just me. On to this week's episode. The owner of Bernheisel Race Cars, Laser Chassis, the man behind Appalachian Mountain Super Late Model Speed Week, Jim Bernheisel on the show. We get into great conversations about late model racing, about the business side of it. Growing up and living in a PA posse in Northeast Dirt Modified world, how do you end up in late models? Great conversation. Jim's a great guy to talk to. Open book. I'll tell you anything, even if you don't like it. And uh, I sure should enjoy it. I hope you guys too. So until next time, enjoy the show. Bill Brown and Company, located in Hamilton, New Jersey, has been in the printing and promotional products business since 1946. Current owner and proud dirt track supporter Ken Bruce has been with the company since 1987 and has continued to deliver the customer service that Bill Brown and Company has delivered since the beginning. Kenny supports dirt track racing through the sponsorship of the number 11 modified, driven by Danny Heber, along with sponsorship of bonuses of Big Diamond Speedway and the Short Track Super Series, and is proud to be a sponsor of the Four Wide Salute podcast. You can reach Bill Brown and Company at 609-586-1408 or by email at kbruce at billbrowninc.com. You can also check out the promotional products on the website at www.billbrowninc.com. On this week's episode of the Four Wide Slew podcast, I have with me the owner of Bernheisel Race Cars and also the series director of the upcoming Appalachian Mountain Speed Week for the Super Late Models. Jim, what a great pleasure to have you on the show for one. Thanks, Casey. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So a lot of things going on and let's kick it off with this Speed Week. So I must have just missed the boat on the previous Speed Week that used to be around here in Central PA with the Super Late Models. And I'm glad to see that it's coming back. What brought this on to uh, rejuvenate this whole thing? Well, as you could probably guess, you know, I, I love dirt late models. That's what we built um, my racing career around, uh, our business focus, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we have a real strong presence of, of dirt late models here in the Northeast United States. Um, and uh, by the way, that gets overshadowed very much by, first of all, the presence of the of the center steer uh, modifieds in the area and also the, the 410 sprint cars. And we have a great hotbed of racing, right? Uh, nothing disparaging against them. But between the Pennsylvania Posse and Northeast modifieds, that's what most people think of when they think about this region of the country. And many people aren't aware how strong super late model racing is in this area. So uh, we wanted to highlight that, bring this series back and show uh, what great racing of all types we have here, including super late models in this area. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I remember going to East Bay, which was my first actual taste of super late models. Believe it or not, I thought what used to run at Grandview back in the day was a super late model, and I just didn't know. But I go down there, and it was so cool because I heard names like Austin Hubbard. Greg Satterley was down there. I'm sure there were others at the time, too. Dan Stone, I believe, was one of them. And I'm hearing Pennsylvania and surrounding areas, and I'm like, whoa, like, these guys run in PA, like, I just didn't know that that was a thing. And well, of course, now here we are eight years later, and I'm a little bit more smartened up on on what goes on. But um, there's definitely a great class of drivers over the course of history and current that come out of Pennsylvania, that's for sure. Yeah, we have uh, actually a couple of uh, third late model Hall of Famers in, in Rick Eckert and, and Gary Stuhler. Uh, Booper Bear from down in Virginia is getting inducted soon. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I think that's one area that uh, our our region is slighted in that, you know, most people, when they think of super late models, think of the South or the Midwest. And, and again, some of it's natural because we're, we're the Pennsylvania posse is uh, so famous, uh, not only nationwide, but worldwide. And then, you know, the, of course, the center steer modifieds originated and are from this part of the world. And so everybody just kind of forgets about the late models and, and the great late model racers that have come out of this area and continue to come out of this area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're 100% on that. I mean, I look at, so Port Royal, for instance, I know they're one of the more regular tracks to run super late models. And when you see guys like Ross Robinson coming up from Delaware or Trevor Feathers from Virginia, that speaks volumes to how good the super late model competition is in Pennsylvania when you're getting guys from definitely uh, a bits away to come run on a consistent basis or most frequent basis. Um, you know, that, that definitely speaks volumes. That That's absolutely correct. Yeah. We have purses uh, in this area for our late model racing that uh, are, are not equal to actually anywhere in the country for, for any, any sort of regular late model shows. And uh, you said that draws really, really good guys to the races. Yeah. So in, Getting this off the ground with the speed week and, and getting it back on the map again, what were some of the things that you were really focused on making sure happen or don't happen when getting this all together? Sure. Well, there, there's a number of things, and and uh, th- that's exactly the way I approached it. You know, what do I want to accomplish? What do I not want to have happen? So, you know, the, the this uh, series went on from uh, 2009 to 2017, so it's it's been. Uh, dormant for a few years. Um, the first thing I wanted to do was maintain the name and the feel of it. So I reached out to the former directors, uh, which were Kurt Smith and Jason Clapper and, and said, Hey, look, you know, I, I've got a vision. I'd like to bring this back. You know, I'd love to do it uh, with whatever level of involvement you guys have, or at least with your blessing, you know, I want to be able to use the name and, uh, you know, to their credit, they, uh, they knew uh, uh, my reputation. And of course uh, they knew me personally as well. And and so they were more than gracious and and allowed me to use the name so that we could keep that continuity, you know, keep that sense of history, uh, and 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 keep what they had already built on. Uh, from there, what we wanted to do is look for a model that was sustainable, uh, something that um, you know, could continue on, not just do it one year and go, oh, okay, yeah, that was fun, and then walk away from it. Uh, that is not the intention at all. Uh, so, and that that fits into how we've approached it. From the uh, first thing I did was landed a, a title sponsor in uh, 
ceilings grow forward right out of the gate. So that was the very first sponsor we had. We had looked outside the racing industry for a lot of the event and special sponsors as well. So, so we weren't, uh, you know, just leaning on all my connections in the racing industry, which you can imagine that that's all. 40 plus years in this business, I have a lot of them, but I didn't want to leverage all those friendships and connections uh, just out of out of people feeling maybe obligated for one reason or another. So at any rate, to to make it sustainable, you know, we we looked at how to make it work financially. And by work financially, I mean so that the series could afford to pay. Like we're taking our own tech people and and officials and our own announcer and our own uh, race director and you know be afford be able to afford to support those people, uh, be able to um also afford to pay point funds and lots of special bonuses. Most of the special sponsorships we got, uh, we didn't get a penny of it or aren't keeping a penny of it. It all goes directly back to the racers in, in some form or fashion uh, in cash rewards. Uh, and then we also wanted it to make sense financially for the racetracks. That's why we tried to keep our purses modest. Uh, you know, they're, they're four or five and 6,000 to win races, four or five and 600 to take the green. We do have a purse structure for eight and 10,000 to win races this year. Uh, a couple tracks talked about stepping up and doing that. And nobody was ready to pull the trigger yet. And that's okay. Uh, you know, but we, we wanted to keep the purses in an area that the tracks were comfortable with so that it's you know not a financial drain on them. We want it to be successful for them. And then thirdly, we wanted to be financially successful for the racers. Now, as I say that, I'm actually sitting here laughing because we're a bunch of goofballs for owning and having race cars in the first place, right? It makes no sense financially whatsoever. However, within reason, it has to make sense, right? So that's why we tried to come up with purse structures and bonuses and and um, point fund money and even loyalty bonuses for people that travel the whole thing, maybe don't get in the top 10 in points and non-qualifiers money and non-qualifier bonuses so that it makes a little more sense so a guy can afford to justify taking his time and putting his effort into it and doing it. So that was that was the focus there on, on making it all live so that it was truly a win-win-win for the promoters, the racers, uh, and also the fans, we want, you know, we really are praying for literally praying and asking God to bless us. Uh, but also asking the, the surrounding community to, to bless us with your presence at these events. Cause fans are, are what make this sport go around. Uh, and in so many ways, not only financially, but also just, just the buzz as a racer, you know, I've, I've won races where there were 5,000 people in the stands screaming and cheering and having a good time. And man, it's just, it just the electricity and the excitement and the atmosphere is, is um, contagious. And, and that's what I'd like to build this into. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the fact that this now puts focus on the super late model division flat out. So it's your speed week. And like we spoke of before, we're in PA posse country. We're in the Northeast dirt modified territory. So most times, and it's unfortunate that it happens this way, but super late models are not the main attraction for the night. They're not the unless we're bringing in you know a lucas oil or an outlaw deal they're not generally you know your premier division so i like the fact that this is now going to put emphasis on super late models are the show you guys are you're the attraction and 
I think a lot of fans are going to appreciate that. And I think a lot of drivers and teams are going to appreciate that because now it's like, well, we didn't have to wait for the big dogs to come into town to be the show. And and you're absolutely correct. And obviously, you know, uh, there will probably be some some big dogs that will show up at some of these races and, mm-hmm. and, and we would be happy to have them. I'm not saying we don't want them. What I am saying is our focus, however, is on making heroes of our guys. Yes. Right? Giving them a good payday, exposing them to the fans. Uh, you, you don't have to sit around and wait for a special touring series race. You have really, really good racers right here in your backyard that are more than capable of putting on a really, really good show. And, and that's what we want our focus to be. Yep, absolutely. So as we're getting really close to these dates, um, how many guys do we have signed up so far? So if if I were being honest, I would tell you one of my maybe a minor disappointment has been we only have a handful of guys that have officially signed up and committed officially to running every event. Okay. Having said that, we peruse, we know a lot of these guys, we peruse uh, websites and, and Facebook pages, look at schedules. There's actually lots of guys that have all of our races on their schedule and just have not pre-registered. Right. Uh, and there's also lots of guys that we have talked to and also have on their schedules and have told us that like, we want to make six. Uh, we know a couple guys that are, are going to make six of the eight races. The other guys have committed to five or seven of the eight races, Be whether it's due to commitments somewhere else or, you know, uh, work schedules or, or the eight races in 10 days is a lot for a working man, which is what most of us are. Right. And, and we get that. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not concerned uh, per se, or we're, we're sure we'll have full fields and really good quality fields. I would have liked to have a few more signed up just so we could, um, Promote them more, you know, prom- promote the racers and their sponsors and their teams and say, hey, you know, these guys are going to be at, at these events. And and as guys are letting us know, uh, we have been doing that. Yeah, I think one of the most awesome things about this Speed Week coming up is the one who was the first to commit was the one I think everyone would give a free pass on, Andrew Yoder. After everything that he went through after Port Royal with the fire and everything and losing so much, it is such a feel good story to hear him being the first one to commit to running the whole schedule. So it, it was actually really cool. Uh, not that Andrew had the fire, obviously, but right, right after that, a couple of days after that, he was he was down here in our store, uh, getting a lot of products to replenish his team, and uh, we had a lot of the stuff that that he wanted and needed, and we were able to, to help him out. And uh, at the same time he was here, he handed in his paperwork and said, "Here, I want to sign up for that." And this was literally days after. He tried to burn his entire racing team to the ground, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so I mean, yeah, I thought that was really cool, and that's why we were happy to tell everybody, hey, the first guy that signed up was Andrew. You know, he's committed to it. He's a great young racer, you know, and and, I, and one of the things I admire about him, you know, they're a family team. Trust me, I I know what that's about. It's a it's a tough dynamic sometimes, right? And and uh, it's tough on the workload. It's tough on the family dynamic, and and he's a really good racer, and I consider him one of the up and coming guys. So, yeah, I thought it was really cool. He was the first want to sign up yeah definitely so that's a good transition point you bring up family you know i definitely want to touch on your racing career you know what's your earliest memories of going to races and and i'm curious how i would assume you grew up in the area right so 
in a area that is dominated by two other main divisions and attractions, how did you end up on the super late model side of things? So that's a really relevant question. And, uh, and not many people ask it, and I think it's actually pretty interesting. So, and it's it's real simple. So I grew up uh, going to Silver Springs and Fredericksburg, uh, watching what became the wing sportsmen, the hobby cars. We're talking junkers, '55 Chevys, Desotos, Hudsons. And uh, one day, my dad took me to Reading Fairgrounds, and I walked in there and saw a big block modifies. First car I ever saw when I walked through the gate was was uh, the '39 Piscopo car with. Uh, uh, Altaz Natty driving them, the injector sticking out of the hood and the big pipes rumbling. Up. That thing is cool. So I wanted to race a wing car or modified. I had no interest in hobby cars or stock cars. They were junkers. They were, they were nothing that interested me whatsoever. Uh, by the way, I would add that no one in my family, uh, in my immediate family ever raced, uh, heck my first time in the pits, uh, was with a race car, which I don't recommend this <laughs> this method, but I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. And uh, no one in my family ever owned a business, ever owned a race car, drove anything. So we, I bought a car and the reality struck me. I was 17 years old. I actually bought my first race car with a uh, $500 loan from the bank and a $200 gift from my uncle. And I don't recommend that method either, but uh I realized that it was a 55 Chevy to race at Silver Springs because it was all I could afford. And what happened was in that time, so that was 1976, by 1979, the cars were morphing tremendously. We were running racing brakes. We were cutting down and making homemade bodies. The, the, the frames were becoming tubular. We were putting tubular controls on the power steering. And by the early 80s, I'm like, these cars are cool. They are just so cool. And I had never been exposed to anything in the stock car world except junkers, clunkers, and hobby cars. And it was at that time that I just I fell in love with the cars. And the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. So, and I'm not too big on the history of the division itself, but, you know, I always hear stories of back in probably the 80s, of course, through the 90s. But how far back do late models technically go? Well, they, they go back to uh, post-World War II wow. uh, uh, racing. And basically, there were there were th- I'm, I'm going that's a little bit of exaggeration. If you if you went post World War, eventually that's where sprint cars and modifieds came out of. The guys started cutting down cars, but before that, they just ran junkers, right? Hobby cars. So then, so then if you go back into like especially around here, if you go back into the '60s, there's one guys the cars started getting sophisticated, and they promoters realized, hey, we need a feeder class, a beginner class. And then so they started running full-size stock cars. And you know, some tracks had they had different names. They called them semi-lates, early modifieds, et cetera, et cetera. But but then they started with 55 Chevys and then progressed to Chevelles and Camaros, Mustangs, pony cars. And you know, so I what what we would call a modern day super late model, in my opinion, started in the 70s. 
Uh, there, and there was debate on this and, and nuance to it, but and they really started in earnest in the 1980s. Then, because uh, that's when the frame started becoming tubular, mainstream tubular, and you could get store bought ones and store bought parts for them. Yeah, I think a lot of divisions are like that, where basically, as they call them, the cookie cutters really change where the division was to where it is. That's definitely a fact. Center Street Modifies, as you referred to, are exactly the same way. You know, until 1980, they were a lot different. And then all of a sudden, everyone kind of looked alike. So then it just it progressed. Um, so I'm really curious to what point, again, you who did not come from a racing family, no one raced in your family. I would think that anyone who decides to get into the business of making cars or selling parts Generally, that's a generational thing. Where did that whole idea come from? And of course, getting it to where you are now, I mean, there had to be a lot of growing pains with just let's yeah, let's just start making these things. So I've always been a wheeler dealer entrepreneur. Uh, I promoted I actually hand built with the help of my buddies and my neighborhood friends a go-kart slash bicycle oval dirt track in my backyard when I was a teenager. And I promoted bicycle races there. I used to charge kids a dime entry fee uh, and sell lemonade and cookies that I, I got my mom to make for me. And yeah, so that is I, awesome, I, by the way. I, I love that. Pro- <laughs> I actually started promoting races when I was 13 years old. That is <laughs> great. That is most great. People, most people don't know that my first gig building uh, race cars to get paid for it. I was 14. I built a a model car of Elvin Feldy's car. He was my hero. I later became a good friend of mine, still is to this day. Um, and actually went from being my hero to a customer of mine when he was still racing modifieds at Big Diamond and and such. But at any rate, uh, I built a model for Elvin when I was 14, presented to him at Intermittent at Silver Spring Speedway, and he won the championship that year. And his car owner came to me and wanted me to build a model like that on a plaque uh, for all of their uh, – for all their pit crew members to give them at the banquet that year for the championship. So my first paid gig building race cars was for Elvin Feldy's championship team in the mid 1970s. Um, later when I started racing, I, I always would look at things and go, I can do better than that. Whoever did, it didn't matter to me. I can do better. And a couple things culminated. I was very blessed. Uh, a guy that was, uh, he was my dad's cousin. He was 10 years older than me. Uh, a friend of mine named Dave, and Dave was an entrepreneur and a welder at the time. He owns a very successful welding shop now, very, very, very successful, him and his son. And uh, he was my Sunday school teacher uh, when I was a kid. He was a mentor to me. Uh, he taught me a great number of things, just a fun guy. Uh, he told me a lot of things about my spiritual life uh, and, and business and being an entrepreneur and enjoying life. And uh, as I said, he was a welder and I wanted to build a car. So he taught me to weld and fabricate and helped me build my first couple of race cars. And that happened at the exact same time these, these cars, as I said, were morphing. And I saw a racing magazine had some parts available for um, dirt late models. It was fiberglass bodies and brakes, MRE brakes out of uh, Boonville, Indiana. And uh, I said, man, I want those. So I went to a speed shop right here in Lebanon that was Everybody in east of the Mississippi went to that speed shop. I said, I, I want to buy those. Those are cool. They said, those things are junk. Nobody wants those. And I went, well, I want them. So I went to the bank. I got my mom to co-sign a loan for me for $5,000. 
And actually, the banker that wrote me the loan uh, was uh, was uh, Dick Hower of the famous Hower family that raced at uh, Reading Fairgrounds for years. And he was the commercial loan officer at the bank. And uh, I was in the racing business, <laughs> much by accident. And that's how it started. I did that for seven years, uh, sold some cars, built some cars and, and bought parts and sold parts. And seven years later, I was relatively newly married with three young kids. And I quit my job and said, well, I guess we're going to sink or swim at this. Wow. And that's, and, uh, that's dedication. So it was 1988. It was me and my a part-time secretary and a part-time helper uh, in a 2,000 square foot building I had just bought, which was a big improvement over where we started. Uh, we're now at the same location, and we cover about 30,000 square feet now. Wow. I have 13 employees. That's crazy. Been very blessed. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got to start somewhere, of course. And just, I, I still can't get past the fact that you were promoting races at 13. That's just freaking awesome. <laughs> I, I hope if you ever write a book about your career, that that is the first freaking page. I really hope. Well, I appreciate that. My <laughs> wife keeps telling me I should should write a book because I, I got a million stories and I swear at least 900,000 of them are true. So. <laughs> And that one is that one is absolutely true. I had actually some trophies I won racing slot cars, uh, and so I cannibalized the pieces from the trophies so I could give trophies out. And uh, <laughs> and then I I promoted a, a go kart mini bike race too. And I had it I had that uh, skewed so I was pretty sure they couldn't beat me on my go kart. And uh, and then when they showed up they they all lost. And then I won the grand prize which was five dollars. Except nobody would race me again because. They, they knew it was a setup, so nobody would pay. Nobody would pay my entry fee. That is too funny. So when it comes to late model chassis, of course, I'm really familiar with the modified aspect. With probably primarily, there's only three chassis builders. There are a couple others, but the three big ones everyone knows of. So now, now that I'm really getting smartened up on late models, I love the division. I can't stop watching it. There are. God, I don't know, over 10, 15 different chassis out there. How do you go about trying to make something different or better than the Rockets, Longhorns, Capitals, you know, Team Zero, all this is out there. It's got to really be, I would think, not necessarily a cutthroat industry, but it's got to be taken with high regard. How do you go about staying up on everything and making sure that you're putting out something competitive or better? So that's a, a multi-pronged question mm -hmm. and a very good one. And trust me, I've, uh, it's, it's one that's given a lot of thought and talk around here. So there's a couple things about it. First of all, the, there are the big right now, there's, there always seems to be about two manufacturers in the late model world, sometimes three, but right now it's two that are dominating all the news. So we call it the merry-go-round mm -hmm. drivers. You just got to look at Facebook or the internet or dirt on dirt. They're, they're, they're flopping from one chassis to this one. That guy's switching from this one to that one. And they're just going back and forth and all over the place. They're on the merry-go-round. Right. And they, and they are dominating all the news coverage right now. It does kind of become self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody's talking about them. You go to the races, they got, they got all the good, all the best racers at the national shows, that sort of thing. Right. And so, you know, the question becomes, how do you even break into that? Well, 
it's 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 as you can imagine extremely extremely tough one thing that happened with us our philosophy uh we and we tell prospective customers and customers is we do things a lot differently than everybody else that's how i roll that's how i got into this i when, uh, i forgot to tell you one part of the the, the story uh when i started racing and getting better there was a particular brand car that had to come from a particular local dealer and everybody knew and i say new in air quotes that is the brand car you had to have to compete well i knew instinctively that was the car i wouldn't have just because i don't want to do what everybody else is doing i don't want to be like everybody else i want to be i want to do my own thing that's the way i roll uh it and it does amuse me today all the guys that are monkey see monkey do in this sport and just they're following the pack it reminds me of a click of uh of actually about eighth grade girls that are just, you know, they just want to fit in so bad. They're willing to say or do or hang out with anybody. And and grown men racers are so much like that. It, it's, it's amusing at times, but at any rate, I digress. So, so when we started in business, as I told you, so I'm there uh, with a borrowed welder, loaned money, uh, two part-time employees and myself, and how do you get into the game? Well, one of the ways to get into the game is you give race cars to heroes. Everybody tells you that doesn't happen. It's utter nonsense. Of course it happens. Stop it. Please stop telling me it happens. <laughs> doesn't happen. Stop it. Uh, and we that wasn't even an option. It wasn't even a thought. We couldn't do that. I mean, I remember it was a really big deal. Uh, when put this in perspective, it was a really big deal at that time. My goal was to have a chassis sitting here done ready to sell a complete car with all the parts on it sitting here done ready to sell and a car's worth of parts sitting on the shelf ready to sell that was my goal that was like and i thought i'll I'll never get there i mean that's going to take thirty thousand dollars it'll never happen we now have a million and a half dollar parts inventory here right so that's how much things have have changed for us so but given the cars away given deals to guys that, that wasn't even an option i had I had a family to take care of. I had mouths to feed. We're not doing it. So we decided, made a conscious decision, let's build a better race car with better quality, backed with better service than anybody else has. And so that's what we did. And that's what we set out to do. That's still our philosophy today. I promise you now, could we give race cars to heroes? Yes. Do we want to? Not really interested. Uh, people, I, we like right now, we got a good core base of cars in Georgia, good core base of cars running races, running races and winning races in Nebraska. Same thing in Louisiana. The guys in Louisiana said to me, hey, how come you guys don't have any cars running on the national tour? I said, do you want your cost to go up? Ten or twenty thousand dollars a car, yep. I can make it happen. And and but no, we're just not interested in it. So then the, the question becomes: how do you highlight your stuff? Well, one thing we do is we do trade shows. A lot of guys in our world don't do that anymore. I like meeting people and and showing off our stuff. And we wish more of our competitors would go to trade shows because we'll put our stuff up against theirs any day of the week. Uh, we go race and win races. We are not professional racers. Uh, we're like everybody else. We race on evenings and weekends because uh, we enjoy it. Yeah, we're in the racing business, but there's a difference being a professional racer. We skip races and seasons to take care of our business because the actual racing from our team is not our business, even though it reflects on our team. So uh, last year, my son uh, won three, Brian won three races in the championship. Uh, I won the opener at Bedford this year. 
I don't know if it's going to move the needle. I'm 65 years old. I, I won my first super late mile race at Bedford Speedway in 1988. I won there again in 2023. I don't know how many 65 uh, year old guys are doing that. Uh, but you know, I, I think it speaks well of our cars. We have guys winning races all over the country and, uh, and, uh, if, you know, if people want to get a, a, a top notch car and, and get treated fairly, uh, we're, we're their guy. If they want to be in the clip, and walk around with the cool swag shirts on and hats, although we have that stuff too. But if you know, want to tell all their buddies that they're running XYZ brand car, uh, yeah, then we're we're probably not your guy. And, and and that's okay. That that's what makes the world go around. I will tell you as far as staying up the technology, we go testing a lot. Uh, I actually have uh, engineers on staff. Uh, we have people we rely on. We we pull uh, data all the time in our testing. Uh, we have some of the trickiest, and I don't know how to run this stuff, but I mean some software and 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 uh, data processing equipment that uh, is really unique in the industry. Uh, we bring in outside engineers to go with us when we do testing, so we have an outside set of eyes to look at things uh, as well as what our people are seeing. So that's really cool. That is, I, I mean, it's. It's just one of these things where I like your philosophy on when someone asks why you don't have cars on the national tour. I like that because you're exactly right. Your costs definitely will go up if that is the case. And I think there's probably more guys running 604s or 602s or limiteds or every other variety although you do have super late models there are so many other cars i mean you see it watching the national tour stops in georgia or in louisiana or in nebraska where there is a ton of these things i mean honestly i think there's more variety of late models in the country than there are sprint cars that's just my opinion i could be wrong no by far no by far you're right it is overall uh, the probably only thing that's that's close is you know if you added up all the stock car you know street stock right. car classes or or some of the Midwest modifieds. But yeah, right. as far as an upper echelon class, uh, you know, late models are got everyone else beat by far. And yeah, how do you deal with the customer service aspect of things with the guys in those three states you mentioned, being that they are nowhere near Pennsylvania? I I would think it's a little tricky because obviously guys aren't coming to your facility it, it is a little tricky so i we just had two customers drive in here from louisiana a couple of weeks ago to pick up new cars uh and it was a long ride for them and and they came here uh and, and they drove past some of our competitors to come here uh got the same thing with georgia now one of the things we got going right now we have a, a dealer in georgia doing a great job for us representing our products uh we're actually uh have a possibility right now of setting a guy up in tennessee that will service tennessee and in, in louisiana surrounding area uh even uh you know our dealership program is a little different uh, you know some of some of the biggest names in the in our sport don't have a dealership program or the dealers just buy stuff at retail and then mark it up to everybody because you can't ever get anything. It, it, right. You know, and, and it's just not how business should be done. And we think that stuff's bad for the sport. Uh, it, it, it's incredibly expensive to do this. We, I, I, I say as well, seriously, we try to keep a lid on the cost. Uh, it's, 
it's out of control and I, I, there's not a lot I can do about it. But our cars, for example, a roller, we're, we're $15,000 less than our, our competitor, our national competitors. Uh, it's a significant amount of money. And, uh, you know, so guys respond to that. And then the customer service, you know, with, with technology, that's really great. I mean, it, most of my customers have my my cell phone number. They can reach me on Facebook. It's, it's actually got a little daunting. I hang, I, I'll sometimes be standing here handling. We have eight landlines coming in here now. I'll be Ooh. handling a couple of landlines and then my cell phone. And then somebody will send me a message and somebody will email me. And and you're trying to juggle it all at once. It gets a little interesting. But, um, you know, there there's ways to stay in contact. We have, for example, you can go on, on our website. One of the first things we did with the series, which is where we started this conversation, mm-hmm. was create a website. Uh, and uh, thanks to uh, Jason Walls at uh, WRT Speedworks, great, uh, going to be a photographer for our series and also uh, did the website for it. Uh, and we put the history up there, but we immediately put the rules up there, the purses, the the things to expect, you know, so people are looking at. We do the same thing with our company. We have a website we stay on top of. Uh, you can go there for results. You can go. We're the only chassis manufacturer in the country that I'm aware of in any kind of racing that publishes our setups online. Wow. They're there to see. You don't get the really cool information until we know you and know you have one of our cars. Right. But the general information is there for anybody to see. Nobody else does that. I know some guys that can't even get their chassis builder to answer a phone call for them. Wow. Again, you know, and here's what we try to point out to people. If, if, if you think it's really cool to wear the T-shirt so you can say, hey, I have one of those cars. That and and you don't care about them taking care of you, or answering your phone calls, or answering your questions, or charging you too much for stuff. That then that's okay. That's that's. I'm glad you're still in racing. I truly am. I, we need we need everybody to stay in the sport. If you want somebody that's really going to take care of you for a reasonable price, we're your guys. That's so cool. You know, two of the things you mentioned: accessibility and transparency. So those are my two foundations of being a race director are those two things. I will be transparent with anyone and I will also be accessible. Now, of course, within reason, don't bother me in the middle of a feature, but I'm accessible. And those are two values that can be applied across racing period. But they're also two that I think get overlooked and disregarded a lot of times, like you've said. And it's so unfortunate that some simple values that, are built into customer service anywhere can be overshadowed or overlooked by so many in the industry. It's great that there are people like yourself and like myself that still have those values. Well, I appreciate that. We we could take that a step farther. You know, I'll give you a, a real, well, let's call it an anecdotal story, but but it does happen. So in our sport, all the time, guys put their arm around you, either literally or figuratively, and say, "Hey, buddy." I'm not making any money on this. I'm just doing this for you. I hate that because it's not true. Please just stop it. Uh, I won't do that to a guy. I, am I going to treat you fairly? Absolutely. Am I going to try to treat you, get you the right pieces for the best deal? Absolutely. Am I going to try to make money on it? Yes, I'm going to tell you the truth because I got 13 people here, including me, who feed their families off of this. And they, and they want to, they want a paycheck next week. Uh, so I'm going to tell you that up front. And I would tell you to be aware of any guy who tells you he's just doing this because buddy, buddy to take care of you. Cause he's fibbing to you. He's a flat fibbing to you. Yeah. There's going to be, there's going to be a catch. There's going to be a catch somewhere to that where he's waiting for you to bite the hook and then he's going to yank on it. 
So yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know what? And that that's a, another great segue too, because I definitely want to bring up the tires. So I understand the theory behind making the new tires and everyone's going to run them because of the guys that are on tour or guys that will drive anywhere and everywhere to go run whatever. And no knock on those guys, more power to them. But when we're talking about Central PA and the guys who don't really travel a whole lot and had all of these tires last year, how does that make any sense to the low dollar guys who don't travel all over the place? Simple answer is two words. It doesn't. So what I'm going to say is, is actually controversial. I don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone. And, and by the way, good people can disagree on a multitude of subjects, of course. including this one. What I will tell you is I have felt from the beginning the going to a national tire was was designed to be a benefit to the traveling professionals. Absolutely. Little to no regard to the local racers especially when they won't let us use up our tires. We know, for example, one of the reasons we are allowing open tires in our series is because we know uh, there are tons of them out in the pipeline yet. Brand, lots of brand new ones, lots of used ones. I, I, my race team had enough tires that we could have run all season between new and used without buying a tire. Yep. And what I'm supposed to throw them away after four, four or five weeks, that, that makes no sense. That's not good for anybody. It's not good for the sport, in my opinion. Uh, I, I'm not powerful enough in the industry to fix that right? Uh, or to even have much of a voice in it. I am powerful enough to change it in my own series. Uh, and that's why we won with an open tire. Uh, by the way, I will tell you, we, as things happen racing and I'm not upset about it, I'm laughing, but one thing that we heard through the grapevine was that one of the reasons we had open tires was because my company had hoarded them all and we had 500, a thousand, I heard various numbers here in our warehouse. <laughs> and then we were going to sell them for $500 a week to that, that, for our speed week our 500 hours a piece and old guys hostage which of course is uh, totally absurd and uh, anybody that knows us knows that we wouldn't do that in fact if you just looked at facebook a couple weeks ago we posted a listing of the like the last 20 of them we had left which were odd sizes and compounds or we're trying to get rid of at a reduced price right. we did it we did it because we thought it was right for sport and that's been the other thing that's our philosophy I love this sport. Uh, my my company encompasses many aspects, uh, which I'd be glad to tell you about if you'd like to hear it. But I, I do this. I got into it. I quit a really good job to do this in 1980, a really good job where I was treated well, paid well, and loved it because I wanted to be involved in racing. So if you think of if you don't think my heart's in the right place or I'm smart enough or I care enough about racing, all right, let for argument's sake, I'll grant you that. I disagree with you, but I'll grant you that for this argument. What about if you say, if I just was to sell you a part, let's say a part that we made legal and I can sell five of them today and make a thousand dollars of them on each of one of them. Right. And it's bad for the sport. I'm not going to do it because I plan to be here a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. After the good Lord takes me home, we have a secession plan in place. My sons are going to be taken over. After that, my grandsons are in line. We want to do what's good for the sport. Right. That would be like selling traction control. Yeah. And I wish, I wish more people <laughs> had that attitude. Uh, just, just do what's good for the sport. 
And then that'll work out for all of us in the long run. Right. You're no, you're absolutely right. It's uh, you know, I remember Andy Hawes posted that he had like 70 some tires because now they're obsolete. But and you're right. What do you do with them? I mean, can. So let me ask you this. Can like the limited lates that run in central PA, can they use the old tires or is everyone on the new ones? So we fought as best we could with uh, all the local tracks with limited lates and um, and even a lot of street stocks run would run our cast off tires okay. uh, to get them grandfathered in so they could run them longer. Um, enough tracks around here have uh, extended their their uh, grace period on the old tires so that I think, and eventually it's going to cure itself anyway, right? Eventually right. they stop making them. So eventually they're going to run out of them. Good, bad, or different. That's going to happen. Right. But you got to you got to let guys use their stuff up. You oh my got, god, yeah. It. Especially when you're in a business where, I mean, I deal with it with our modified guys, right? So I know of a handful of guys that before the tire shortage, um, would buy fifty or hundred tires at the beginning of the year. But there's also a lot of guys who just buy as needed because they don't have that extra 15 grand laying around. Correct. So yes. I think that's where, and again, I think we're in agreement that this new tire made the perfect sense. I don't indicate it's bad whatsoever for the national touring guys. Like I said, the hop around from running all the different series and stuff. Good. That That's perfect for them. I completely agree to that. But I think it's only beneficial for them. I don't disagree. So, yeah. So the one other thing I did want to bring up as far as the um, uh, race car aspect of things here before we start to wind this down is I would love to get a better explanation of what in the hell the droop rule is and what <laughs> it exactly is it doing? What are what are the officials doing? Is there a benefit? Like, I don't completely understand it. And unfortunately, I can only believe Tyler Herb's analogy so much as it equivalates to suck my balls, which was funny as shit last week. But can you give me a, a kind of a dumbed down explanation of what the droop rule is? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so much like the tire rule, I'm out of the mainstream and that I think the droop rule is stupid and we shouldn't be doing it. My series is not doing the droop rule. So it has its basis in the the theory that getting the left rear deck specifically and the spoiler left rear specifically in the air on our cars is a huge aerodynamic advantage. Uh, for that reason, rules were instituted, maximum spoiler heights, maximum de deck heights, et cetera. As shock technology changed in the last few years, guys figured out how to to uh, manipulate their shocks so that the right front was way up in the air and the left rear was way down when you were measuring it into pits. But as soon as the car started going around the track, the nose would flop down, left rear would come up in the air and, and go to town. Um, so to fix that, then they came up with a rule where they would measure the nose height simultaneously with the left rear deck height. Then someone discovered, hey, and I know who, but I'm, I'm not going to call them. I actually consider them a friend. I just, I think they're wrong. Uh, said, hey, why don't we put a jack under the frame, jack the car up till the left rear wheel comes off the ground. 
and then measure the deck and come up with a maximum number there. The problem is, as you can see, is there's a lot of arbitrariness in it. The wheel is off the ground. What does that mean? What? And then, by the way, then guys came up with limiters and stuff and things to do on the right rear that altered when the left rear came off the ground. Then they quickly altered that and made another rule. And that's what always happens. Rules just like cautions breed cautions. Rules breed rules because racers find ways around. So at, at any rate... The droop rule, they're jacking the frame up, waiting for the left rear wheel to come off the ground. They're letting the wheel droop out from under the car because theoretically that's how high it would get on the racetrack. And then they're measuring to make sure the deck isn't too high. Uh, totally hate it. Think it's stupid. And here's my analogy. So I'm going to work, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go win that race. And then I got to wait while some guy who I don't know slides a snow shovel under my tire and some other guy I don't know is measuring my spoiler. I will label or my deck. I will link this back to when I race limited late models, limited late models in our area is really strong. It's a great class. Mm -hmm. I like it. I have a lot of respect for it. I raced it for years. One of the things I hated about it was you would win a race and then you had to worry about, they were checking your fuel and they were checking your piston height and they were pumping you and checking your cubic inches and measuring your rods. And is your carburetor sticking up too high past the intake? And I, I hated all that that's what i loved about super late models i would win the race if i rolled across the scales and i made weight i won the race it was over now they're taking that away from us again they're taking rods off and they're checking the droop and with a snow shovel in the stones for goodness sake yeah it's so stupid i watched the opener at a racetrack on tv this spring because it was too cold uh and i didn't feel like going we left our race car at home and the guy that won the race i don't even like him personally all right i'm just being honest with him right. it's not like he's a buddy of mine or something he's not a customer he doesn't run one of my cars i don't really even care for him he won the race and they jacking his car up sliding the snow shovel over and I was mad because it wasn't fair to him. He won the race. Leave the guy alone. He should be going to get his picture taken. Now, as it turned out, he was legal. But so, yeah, that's that's what the droop rule is. It's dumb. By the way, even if you're going to do the droop rule, why don't they do this? This was my kid's idea. Jack the car up till you're at the measurement that is prescribed, the, the maximum measurement, right. and then see if the wheels turn or not. You don't need a snow shovel. Ah. Either they turn or they don't. You're right. You're it would right. be so easy. And yet, yeah, but they don't do it that way. But like you said, like you said, you know, like you said, cautions breed cautions and rules breed rules. I think as this progresses, of course, we're going to get more technology rules involved. But I feel like the rule book is just going to get thicker and thicker and thicker. Because Already has. Yep. As, you're, as you brought up, and I, I tell other drivers this, I feel... It is all about finding that next thing that is the edge. It's not necessarily about progressing as a driver or getting, you know, a better mental game or physical game and just excelling on the track with your feet or your hands or your eyes. It's this almost like a weasel game of trying to find that next little thing that's not necessarily illegal, but might not be legal so let's just do it until someone tells us about it kind of thing and it just it sucks that this has to happen this way but 
It's part of it's part of the sport, though. You you can't control, but that's why. So there is no droop rule in our series, and you know we we tried to address things that we didn't like when we go racing, right? And so that's why we are measuring the deck height. We're doing it in a tech box before you go on the track. We're gonna measure them nose simultaneously, so you can't manipulate your shocks. Easy peasy. We have two gauges to do it, uh, and and that's it. Uh, one thing, other things I'll tell you about the series too. You know, this is the uh, I, I'm gonna say the second step. I actually. Uh, co-promoted a race uh, for late models last year it was an artistic success if not a financial one but uh it went off well uh, we want this speed week to go off well but this is this is just a step in a grand plan uh and you know, as i've been told you we've been very blessed with our business growth here and i i got really good people working for me so i don't have to be here 24 7 uh worrying about bernizel race cars incorporated and so i've been able to spend some time on Appalachian Mountain Speed Week, and this is just, uh, as I said, second step in a in a master plan, uh, all related around promoting super late models in the night Northeast. That's awesome. I'm disappointed about the troop rule. I was gonna bring my snow shovel, but it's all right. <laughs> you can leave your snow shovel at home. <laughs> Do not need it. All right, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, as we wind this down, are you ready to get into our green white checkered segment? Three random questions. Absolutely. All right. Do they have to be short answers or can they be long answers? I, you can do whatever you please. I don't care. Cool. All right. Let it rip. Let's go green. It's time for green, white, checkered on the four wide salute. Green flag question. If you hit the massive billion dollar lottery, what's the first thing outside of racing you would buy yourself first thing outside of racing i would buy myself yep not paying off your debt not buying a new shop nope what's the first thing you're going to actually splurge on for yourself that's not racing related i am going to buy a brand new mid-engine corvette there you go see i know everybody's got something they all do i like it White flag question. Who would be your dream celebrity to get in the two-seater, either to scare the shit out of them or to impress them? Yeah, we didn't talk about the two-seater. And it's now's your it's time. coming back out here in a couple weeks. And now's the time, you know, the two-seater experience. That, that's been a lot of fun. That's what I anticipate doing more of when I retire from driving scene. But but at any rate, so celebrity that I would like to impress. Or scare. I, I got no, I gotta do it soon. I want to impress Clint Eastwood. Oh because he is just wicked cool. Aha, I like that. I like that. And yeah, go ahead and tell everybody about the two-seater. I love it. So go ahead. Yeah, so the Bernheisel Racing Experience is our two-seat car. Uh, obviously, two-seat ride-along cars have been done before. Uh, this one was not some chopped-up car that was converted. This was custom-built from the ground up. Uh, really fortunate to have a good uh, family, friends, and sponsors in the Diefenbach family. may make the best potato chips in the world. And unfortunately, uh, their son, William, uh, was afflicted with a... Uh, uh, brain tumor several years ago and uh actually we uh we prayed for William at our church one morning and uh, my son brian came to me and said he was around sound that day he said dad and we need we need to build a two-seater so we can take william for a ride william was 14 and he wanted to be a race car driver and he wasn't going to make it so we 
dropped everything, built that car, and we were able to take William for a ride. So that's how it came about. Uh, but we wanted it to be a custom-built car that you know mimicked the four-link stuff, has a real motor in it. It's got actually an aluminum-headed race motor, a motor I've won races with in the past. Uh, and it feels, it rocks up like a real late model. It rock and rolls. I give them a good ride. After it was done, we sat here going, that car is done. What do we do with it now? And we decided to go travel to racetracks, give rides to people, uh, and give them a taste of what it's like. Nobody has ever gotten out and went, man, that was okay. I mean, everybody is uber impressed and loves it. Uh, we've been really fortunate the last few years we uh, get uh, contracted to bring it to uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway for the World Finals, which last year down there, I actually hit the wall with it, giving somebody for a ride, which <laughs> – I could hear the crowd screaming over the engine noise, which which was pretty cool. Uh, my my kid said to me the next morning, he said, "Well, Dad, I finished fixing straightening the body for the two seater," which are words no one ever thought they would hear, but <laughs> you did it. Uh, so so yeah, that's that's what that's for, and, I, and I, it gives me still a taste of you know getting in the car and having some fun. So that's how it came about for for the listeners out there that watch the world finals. And when you wonder why the next heat's not coming out, this is the reason it's because Jim's, it's, right. it's Jim's <laughs> fault every time. You know, I, Chili Bowl's been doing it with a elongated. I don't know if it's a midget or a variation of a wingless sprint car. Yeah, I'm not sure what that. But I, I feel like the two seater late model would be a better experience. Well, for one, you're on a bigger track, but for two, that one of the chili bowl is nose to tail. You're almost like you're in a fighter jet where I think sitting next to the driver would be more realistic. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Well, and the car is more realistic too, as far as wheelbase and stuff. I mean, the only right. thing that's skewed is the left side percentage is off a little bit with a driver on the right side. It is amusing. I come off the corners, you know, in the fuel cars rocked up down on the nose, uh, I'm counter steering and I look, I glance over and everybody's over there steering with me They're They have a steering wheel and it doesn't do anything, but they're, <laughs> they're feeling like they got to turn that wheel, keep it off the fence. And it's, it's pretty fun. That's awesome. And I'm sure so you, that's our Wi-Fi. I'm sure you've seen the footage of, uh, when Tony took out Daryl Waltrip at Aldora. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had any experiences quite like that where guys are screaming their heads off going nuts? Um, yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll relate. Two or three to I took a guy for a ride at Charlotte and he was uh he was actually it was uh when uh, KM was sponsoring the races that year and he was a KM dealer. And he let me know and really nice, you know, wasn't arrogant or anything, but he let me know, you know, he rode four wheelers and snowmobiles and you know, he was into it. And this was basically this was just another ride, something cool, right? Right. And when we got done, I, I took my home and said, What do you think? And his hands were shaking, he couldn't get his helmet on done. He goes, That was the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, and I, I took a race car for a driver for a ride once at Bedford Speedway. And he let me know, you know, he's driven race cars and, and, and this wasn't going to be that big a deal. And, uh, same thing there. His hands, hands were shaking. He said, man, that was cool. And then finally, uh, I took my daughter once. And most people don't even know I have a daughter. Of course, from the racing, they're real familiar with my sons. They're involved with me here at the company and right. crew chiefing and driving. Uh, my daughter. Uh, she's the only one in the family with a real job. She's a teacher at Lydish Christian School, and she's just a sweetheart. And uh, I took all the family for a ride one night. Uh, actually, my youngest grandson had a ride when he was in his mother's womb, which is really cool. So he's he's doomed to be a race car driver. But I took my daughter for a ride, and I could hear her over there screaming, and she said a bad word, which is really, really not like her at all. That's funny. <laughs> 
Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. There you go. Two seater is a very, very cool deal. I absolutely love it. All right. Checkered flag question. If you could make a last lap pass for the win, who are you passing and where? Like what track? Last lap pass for the win. This is the easiest one you have asked me, and I've never thought about it before, but this is just so so obvious, so easy. I want to pass Scott Bloomquist coming off a of four at Eldora because he is the GOAT. There's no question. He is, is still the GOAT. Nobody has unseated him yet. And there's some other really good guys, but he's it, and he's especially it at Eldora in his prime. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's what it needs to be right there. I like it. And you better be running the top because you know he's going to be glued to the bottom, too. (laughs) All right. I better better be better than I normally run. So I'm going to throw an audible out here. I'm going to say the yellow just came out on the checkered flag lap and we got to run one more lap. How do you think about that? All right. Great race. Stupid race director. Race should have been over. I should have been in victory lane, but okay, go ahead. That shit happens, right? So in current late model racing, I think there's a huge debate on the top three. We have Davenport won over $2 million last year. Of course, one of those was one race. Brandon Overton has been the king of the dream and won a lot of shit, too. But then I think Brandon Shepard is still making a claim, although he's out of the Rocket House car. So out of those three guys, if you got to build yourself a limitless financial team, who do you want behind the wheel out of those three? I stumped him. I stumped him. No, because <laughs> right now, because of the guy I'm going to pick is, is Jonathan Davenport. Okay. I, I, I know Jonathan a little bit. Uh, just just a great dude besides being a great driver. He's off a little bit right now. A little bit. So he, he's making me hesitate because he's off a little right now, but you can't keep a good driver down. So no. uh, he, he's the guy. All right. It's fair enough. I like it. And I'll take either of the other two, by the way, if they want to come drive for laser, that's okay. So I got to tell you, I got a chance to meet Overton. My wife loves him. She's She loves the accent. She's all about Overton. Well, I went to West Virginia for the Lucas show last year, and I approached him, and I said, I couldn't believe there's no merch here, and there wasn't any. And he actually hooked me up with a shirt and said, you know, got my address and sent it to him my wife and i said you know she's a real big fan of your accent and i just admitted it he recorded a video for her letting her know that the shirt was in the mail which was so cool that is very cool some of these guys don't care to go that extra length sometimes and and no everybody has their own deal but i thought that was a very cool experience he didn't know me from adam he'd never met her and just for him to be that cool and you know reserved about it. I, I thought that was just a very cool experience. Right, right, right. There's a, a guy that knows what's good for the sport. Can, can I leave you with another thought? One other thought, Casey. I know it. we've been, we've been going long. You know, I, I'm getting long in the tooth. I'm 65 now. I don't know how much longer I'll be racing. So I, you know, I, uh, uh, most people don't realize, but I've, I've, uh, accomplished, uh, a few things in this sport and I don't see, I, I don't see me accomplishing much more to be quite honest with you. Just, uh, just the reality of it, but I've been fortunate enough to, I don't have hundreds of wins like some guys, but I've actually won at uh, 18 different tracks in three states, and I'm I'm pretty proud of that. Should be. You should be. That's respectable. Absolutely. Most guys haven't raced 18 tracks, let alone to win at 18 tracks. Absolutely. You should be definitely proud of that. 
And like you said, first win in 88, right? Or And, and then winning in 2023, 20, that's not too shabby. Well, Jim, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Great conversation. I hope you have a very successful speed week. Let the sun be shining and nothing else, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Anytime, brother. Best wishes to you.